Hi, this is Paul. Those of you who follow me on Twitter or are on Twitter, perhaps against all of our collective better judgment, know that this conversation between Auron McIntyre and Wokel... What's Wokel's, what's Wokel's last name? <laughs> Wokel Distance? Um... Hey, he, Wokel was on my channel quite a while ago. It was We had a wonderful afternoon together. In fact, the conversation that he and I had was only two hours of sort of the four hours that we spent on Zoom that afternoon. So, so we should we should do very much do another conversation. And this is on um, this is on Benjamin Boyce's channel. But they had a very interesting conversation on liberalism. And this was part two. I didn't listen to part one, but I caught part two and I caught some of the pieces of it. And it really grabbed my attention because. This is what I've been talking about with respect to Tim Keller. So I'm going to talk. Uh, I'm going to play some of this, and I'm going to play some of the Tim Keller clip, and then we'll play more of this because there's some really important points that get made in this conversation. I don't understand the moral framework that's actually being applied to their society, and this means that liberalism is very open to infiltration because it doesn't have good ways to gatekeep its ideology it's because you know uh, james burnham said that liberalism is the ideology of civilizational suicide now, now part yeah, i love how benjamin sort of says uh, ideology of civilizational suicide and this gets into sort of the twin aspects of liberalism because liberalism is supposed to be let's say an open mechanism by which well by which what and it's that what that's the question and um, and part of what's been happening, and this goes through what Tom Holland's comments about secularism, my comments that secularism is sort of a, a second secret church that is below the surface. And but it purports, no, this is this is an open market. This is blue skies. This is there's no religion here. Well, the, the reality about it, it's sort of like when I. If you bought a if you bought all the computer hardware and didn't have an operating system, you don't have a computer. Liberalism basically says we're just the hardware, and as you know, Tim Keller, the clip that I'll play of him, uh, no, not really, because it doesn't have the ability to protect itself from hostile ideologies because it believes that every one of these things has to be heard and every one of these things needs to have a clear uh, day in court and, and, and you know, should win on its own merit. But that's actually not how people work. That's not how civilizations work. That's not how... Now, now this idea of a day in court is, is sort of behind it. There's a narrative behind it that, and this is a very modern narrative, well, there's just science. And this is where, in many ways, Jordan Peterson's work is all about See, I talked about natural law, and when I talk about natural law, the um, fanboys of Thomas Aquinas get excited, the fanboys of various political and economic systems get excited, and, and a lot of what's gone on with Jordan Peterson is that he's basically saying there is a natural law, but he's sort of updating it with Darwinian ideas. It's very interesting, I was reading The Weight of Glory and in um, preparation for the sermon that I posted on Saturday. I'll, I'll post this on Monday. Um, Lewis very much had sort of an inkling, not anywhere near as developed as Peterson, of course, but an inkling about sort of a Darwinian updated, a Darwinian view of the Bible in terms of these ideas persist because they last. How moral systems or frameworks, uh, moral visions are determined. They're not determined 
by like general consensus or the or some kind of win in a marketplace of ideas. And so what happens most of the time is liberal liberalism makes itself kind of a, an open door for people who want to rush in and infect uh, you know different institutions with hostile ideologies, which is exactly why we see the hostile ideologies that we have today. Now, if you listen to the rest of history, they did a multi they did a multi episode treatment of the rise of the Nazis. And again, a big part of the anxiety about the Nazis is because basically what happened with Nazi with the Nazis is that they took over a democratic regime. Now, if you listen to the whole podcast, you'll see that there was, a, in many ways, that democratic regime was deficient and weakened. But, you know, totalitarian regimes displace uh, democratic institutions often and this anxiety and a lot of the finger pointing going on in our political system no you're killing democracy no you're killing democracy that are just running rampant over institutions with basically no way to stop them because there was really no way for liberalism to gatekeep those institutions in the first place so if i understand what you said correctly it's that um there's a there's a line that gets used a lot that gets tossed around a lot in right circles and it is um the constitution is supposed to ensure that we have limited government it didn't work so now what yes the it, meme yes right right yeah. yeah that that meme so your your would be kind of following that it would be liberalism is supposed to use reason as a sifting mechanism in order to eject harmful and wrong ideas now, what he said, Local Distance is brilliant through this video, I have to say. He's really nailing things because, of course, in modernity, you have this world of objects. First, you know, first paragraph in Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning. You have this world of objects and sort of this Lockean epistemology. And we as rational creatures are supposed to engage the world of objects and the good will be something that's fairly self-evident, and we should pursue this good in the world of objects using reason. And, and this whole worldview is behind the new atheists and older atheists than them, because it's very much implicit in the, in the project. And this is where natural law is very important, because natural law is what you ought to be able to discern by looking at the natural world and understanding, having some orientation to the good. And I think a lot of what's happening with Jordan Peterson and his uh, neo-natural law, we don't have the language about this yet, um, the neo-natural law is now via Darwinian, via the pragmatists, and now via cognitive science, Jordan Peterson is going to look at, well, you know, the apes and the rats and all of these, all and evolutionary biology and all of these things will speak of the goodness in the world if we but attend to our science and attend to our reason. And so in that way, you can very much see how Jordan is trying to reestablish this, this, this neoliberal regime, and but liberalism itself has been under debate um, by conservatives and wokesters, and in many respects, um, they're they're fighting over this. That didn't work. Now what? 
Is it? Is it? Are we kind of in that same path? Is that? Am I kind of catching the, the broad, thing there, or am I kind of off? Sure. So uh, again, it depends. Uh, again, what iteration of liberalism you want to talk about. But one of the problems is that along the path of liberalism, we decided that the mechanisms involved and constructed by people like Montesquieu, the physical mechanism itself was enough to restrict government power or restrict harmful ideologies. That the, that right. this they're this self-governing ideology, this, this Rube Goldberg machine was going to sort all this out for us, and we would not be governed. We would govern ourselves because this machine would kind of automatically work itself through all these ideas. The best ones would come out on top, and this would guard our civilization against you know, uh, harmful ideologies and decay. That hasn't happened, right? And, and for, I think, pretty obvious reasons, because the, the mechanisms of liberalism that were first established to do this were not actually, they weren't mechanical. They were based on social spheres. So ah, you can see, see the, the, the philosophical pictures that were the foundations for our relationship with these institutions and our worldview has changed. And so before, in the clockmaker universe, these were the mechanisms, and we basically just had to discover the mechanisms by observation and reason, and those mechanisms would, in fact, yield the, um, the improvement that we're, you know, we were all destined to imagine. And now suddenly we have very different um, picture models beneath the surface that, that look quite different. Uh, opposing social forces. The magic of Montesquieu is not the number of branches of government. It's that each branch is supposed to, supposed to represent a social force that applies pressure against the other and keeps any one sphere of society from completely dominating, including government. The problem is that we completely remove those things thinking that the mechanism itself would be sufficient. And once that happened, all of the branches of government and everything else ended up falling under the sway of the exact same mechanism, which is popular sovereignty, which is easily manipulated by people who run media companies or universities and have a very easy time of hacking your system and then delivering a fatal ideology throughout the system. How do you reverse uh, popular sovereignty? How do you go back from that? See, and when he asked that question, well, pop, what, the, how do you reverse democracy? How, because the idea is that, again, Jeffersonian idea that the group of people, that that's go, there's going to be the emergent goodness is going to come out from, from the people. Now, obviously not a terribly Augustinian view of humanity, but this is, this is, what, we're, this is what we're dealing with. Now, I want to replay what Tim Keller said in this conversation with Carrie Newhoff, because this very much is the debate about liberalism. Does it work? Um, is liberalism just sort of an open playing field and the competition of the best ideas with free speech will win? But weirdly enough, liberal democracy kind of led to the decline of religion, probably. Because it, it really said, you know, religion is okay for your private life, but when it comes to the public life, we really don't need it. You know, it's really not important. We just use science and reason to figure out how we're going to live. 
And you you park your religion at the door when we come out here and talk together. You know, whether you're a Jew or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist, you you, you know you you come together and we just we just on you know we just decide this. And it was it was part of uh, I think what weakened faith because it was really saying faith is a private thing. It just makes you happy, but it really isn't all that necessary for how you live your whole life. And, and this is piece of the enlightenment too, because no, we we put religion aside, and all of these enlightenment values are they just are instead of understanding that anything that you just say they just are uh, that's your religion, that's your operating system, that's your worldview, that's sort of your base level of reality and your axioms that you are working from. Ever, but the fact is that when religion started to decline. The thing that now, I, I have some atheist friends who admit this, say the thing that actually held us together was not freedom of speech, freedom of association, you know, using our reason. What held us together was like 80% of the population went to either a Catholic or a, or a Protestant church. They actually went. And that even though, like, you know, the liberals and conservatives in Congress... In other words, it was all of the psychotechnologies and all of the implicit stuff, and it was all of the stuff, the the formation that was be able, that was creating um, these the vast agreement about human values and the vast agreement about one thing or another, and this, then, you know, we just had to agree on the little things. Would were arguing over taxes or unions, but they would never argue over same-sex marriage. They all thought it was be a horrible thing. In other words, everybody was a nominal. Eighty, ninety percent of people were nominal Christians, and because they were nominal Christians, they had they had a moral base, and they lived with the illusion that we're really not a Christian country. We're a secular country, but the fact is, they'd never really had to deal with pluralism using liberal democratic uh you know structure and when real pluralism came along when real pluralism came along, we found out we, we couldn't abide it and so now here's the first thing that happened the first the first group of people that actually moved away from liberal democracy into we're going to impose our worldview on you were the progressives they were the first people to start doing it um what uh rowan williams archbishop of canada so Tim Keller says the progressives killed democracy, not the conservatives. Just saying. Very former. Talks of, he calls it programmatic secularism rather than procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. But, but programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you, ex well, put it this way, in the 60s and 70s, e well, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony, it wasn't pluralistic, there was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when, when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of just defining hate speech and obscene speech? And progressives said, we're going to do it. 
And so what they actually have done is they are imposing a kind of programmatic, uh, hard secularism. And conservatives and Christians have seen that. They say, you know what, you're not being neutral anymore. You're really actually pushing. You're really, you're actually saying, you're actually saying you have to keep your religion totally, totally private when our religion doesn't allow that. Now, by the way, it's the same problem with Islam. So they're going to have the more Muslims that are here, the more problems they're going to have there too. But the issue is that conservatives are pushing back wrongly, I think, and are saying, yeah, liberal democracy doesn't work. We need, there's a lot of conservatives and we need Christian nationalism. We actually need to get, the, the state needs to be overtly Christian, overtly Protestant, or there needs to be, you know, the Catholic integralists say that the Catholic church should be the state church. And what they're saying is there's absolutely no way to get that moral consensus. We're always going to be fragmented. Liberal democracy doesn't work. And it is a crisis because the fact is, as long as everybody was a nominal Christian, liberal democracy works and it doesn't, we're not that anymore. Liberal democracy undermined Christianity and religion in general and created the situation where we truly are divided. And now the old liberal democracy, democratic, uh, uh, you know, proceduralism doesn't bring us together. We're just mm -hmm. at each other's throats. We have alternate views of reality, totally different views of reality. And I don't have a good way forward. I mean, if you were asking me that question, I'm not going to answer it because I'm actually thinking it out. I still think liberal democracy is way better than Catholic integralism or Protestant Christian nationalism. But I also feel like you've got to call out the progressives, you know, to say. Now, now right there, you can see the split that's happening in the evangelical world and the split that's happening. This is this is the crisis. So let's keep going with this one. Well, it's usually you're usually going to see a, a, a Caesar mechanism, right? The, your your Bonapartism is almost always a function of popular will that brings about somebody who then severs that uh, tie. And again, now Bonaparte is an interesting example because if there's a father of modern regimes, it's um, it's it's Napoleon. Not uh, not advocating for one another, but if you're looking for historical examples, this is how it happens over and over again. Whenever you have a uh, situation where people have kind of invoked the right of the people, the right of the people then end up you know, uh, selecting someone who's able to make things work. And that's generally how you see that happen. And that transition, do you, do you foresee some sort of transition like that happening on uh, the world stage at this point in time, uh, or at least in America, is that possible anymore with the interconnectedness of our technology, of all of our, our economics and our media companies and our school systems, and the accreditations and all this stuff is stacked on top of itself. How, mm -hmm. can, how, how can it be felled or does it need to collapse? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it could need to be collapsed. It's hard to, to predict the future in that way. But it also could happen the same way it happened in Rome. Like no one came around and said, uh, we're an empire now, right? Rome was... And the rest of history is treating that subject too. A republic, and then Rome was a republic under uh, Augustus, and then Rome was a you know, had a senate and was a republic while it had emperors, right? Like the, we we recognize it now as an empire, but you know, it's, it's reasonable to say... And now... Empire isn't the best choice of words here because one might very well argue that America is an empire. Uh, 
Um, our empire runs in different ways and we colonize in different ways than um, a lot of the empires that wanted to take um, geopolitical control over other things. And in fact, that type of control has long been, the Roman Empire did that quite a bit more. They'd have client kings and client nations all around and their will was enforced, etc., etc. The question is much more whether or not it's totalitarian, meaning that you sort of give up the idea of popular sovereignty. And the rationale for giving up popular sovereignty is that the justification, the ability of popular sovereignty to, in fact, deliver outcomes and to know the truth, the sense-making of the populace is undermined and therefore, and you hear this all the time with American politicians, the will of the American people, the will of the American people, and the will of the American people. And the, of course, the will of the American people is always exactly what that particular politician says it is. Um, so the will of the American people is sort of like the search for the historical Jesus. You look down that long well, seeing his own reflection looking back up. No one's going to come around and, you know, name someone king and put a crown on their head, right? But, you know, America has had imperial presidents before. Abraham Lincoln and FDR were functionally kings. And it's not wild to imagine that just like, you know, other republics of... Uh, functionally kings, FDR tried to pack the court, Lincoln. But but part of what happened in Lincoln's... I mean, the, the, the American system underwent a radical transformation during the Civil War. Um, and, and the American, I mean, the, the government, the, the nation was much more federalized by virtue of Lincoln. And, and one could argue it was much more greatly federalized by, and, and again, you have two instances of war. You have the Civil War and the Second World War. And these were two of the most demanding wars that the American Republic ever fought. But, um, yeah, the imperial presidency, that's been a debate that's gone on quite a bit. And many would argue that part of what has caused the imperial presidency is the abdication of, um, of power by the Congress. But during, especially during FDR's administration, yeah, Congress bit back a few times. But, you know, what, what we're seeing now is that, you know, California, for example, has super majorities in both houses and so gets his way. And um, I don't know this to be true, but I heard it that DeSantis has super majorities in both houses, so gets his way. So, yeah, but in that sense, the America, the United States as an accumulation of states um, as, a, as a bit of a different function. Old, we would have a consolidation of power, if not formally under the title uh, you know, practically under the actual collection of powers, and then you would see, you know, an individual make those changes. But again, it, it might require a collapse. I'm not saying that that's how it's going to function. But I'm just saying that's a possibility. It's happened before. Well, if that's the case, then what the left, or at least the intersectional left, has a leg up in the process of being able to bind, um, I, I think inefficiently and not necessarily constructively, but they can bind this pluralistic society, whereas the right... I don't see if the right has a unifying principle. I don't see if it can even market a unifying principle because it wants people to be different or it accepts the fact of different. And this is where this conversation takes a different turn because many people would assert, and this is where Benjamin Boyce really has an interesting position in this ecosystem because much of the channel that he has, he was sort of out, he sort of began outing the, um, 
the 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 evergreen files and then talking to transitioners and detransitioners and people all across the spectrum and and so many would just sort of say well Benjamin Boyce is kind of on the um, on the conservative side but he's part of sort of we really don't post progressive is probably a better title than than IDW in that um, he's he's been and local distance is actually going to really talk well about this. And and this is this has become what a lot in this space, and I think myself included in many ways, have sort of come where, okay, so there's a lot of skepticism about the woke agenda. It's just too incoherent. It, it just it it can't stand up to reason or very well it's it's mostly propagandist but okay so so where to go and a lot of conservatives say well we just go back but many in this post-progressive space basically say you really can't go back there's no going back and and part of the reason there's no going back is because technology and technology has continued to scramble to disrupt to change to to make it you know let's say even even in a church context in the specific fight within the christian reform church right now what you need to have a having a denomination today is very different than it was in the 1970s and far different from what it was in the 1940s and 50s and far different from the from the from the 1920s partly just simply by technology. In the 1970s, the Christian Reformed Church had the banner, which was the weekly magazine of the Christian Reformed Church. Magazines have gone away. And, um, and then, well, web pages, no web pages. Uh, artificial intelligence, you know, chat GPT is going to do away with web pages. Uh, it's going to be social media. Web pages are too slow. Uh, almost many businesses now, they might have a website, but they'll all tell you, don't go to the website for up-to-date information unless they're a corporation of a certain size that has staff to keep it all current. A lot of people, like I've been, you know, my wife and I have been considering getting another dog, particular breeder, we went and visited her and she said, yeah, don't, don't pay any attention to the website. Follow the Facebook page because that's what she updates. Follow the Instagram, follow all of these you can't simply go back, but there's the sense of we're moving too quickly and religious institutions and political, especially religious institutions, but to a degree political institutions slow down the rate of change. And there's a sense that, well, this is, this is sort of what we need. I don't see if the right has a unifying principle. I don't see if it can even market a unifying principle because it wants people to be different or it accepts the fact of difference. And, and, that, and that itself shows a major transformation because 30 years ago, the right would have said, no, we're, we're intolerant of differences. And now what's happened is that this um, programmatic secularism is itself intolerant of differences. And so now people have been finding, people who are high in openness, for example, have been finding that there's way more room for disagreement on the right than there is on the left. Because this is this is what's happening. Those two emperors, the American emperors that you summoned, Lincoln and FDR, were living in a different time. There was a different um, demographic 
uh, that made up the people that they were ruling. And there was more similarity, arguably, maybe not, um, to the American consciousness uh, during those two people's reign than there is now. Now, pay attention to that word consciousness, okay? Let's invoke that. Well, one might argue that during the time of the Civil War, and especially well during the time of the Second World War, there was enormous diversity in America. Many of the small immigrant religious communities like the Christian Reformed Church saw themselves in isolation. Radio broke that down. Newspaper broke that down. Print broke that down. But the war itself, and in both cases, the war broke down the smaller institutions and forced the country to sort of come together into one, into one what? Into one consciousness. You know, part of the big debate of the Thunder Bay Conference on conscience and consciousness is the question, can we use the word consciousness when we're talking about principalities and powers and larger bodies? Do those bodies have consciousness? And the reason I say they do have consciousness is because we keep referring to them as consciousness. But you say, yeah, but it's different from, you know, the consciousness that I'm experiencing right now. Yes, it is. But the consciousness of my dog is different from the consciousness that I have, it seems to be. The consciousness of a city is different from the consciousness that I have. Consciousness is experienced at many different levels and in many different ways. And even the, the, cellular, the electrocellular economy of my body has a consciousness of sorts. So the consciousness of the country was dominated by, at that point, really up until the Second World War and into the Cold War. It came down at the end of the Cold War. The consciousness were the waspy elites in Protestant America. Peterson talked quite a bit about that in the Louise Perry video. Boy, it's just there's just so much content being put out now, I, I really can't keep up. No, I mean, that's true. I, I think the only... Come, the only really binding coalition of the left is their desire to dismantle the current scenario, and so I don't know that 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 uh, that glue and and that's why wokeism can't go too far because, as with many coalitions, they can come together in opposition, but once they have power, well, are you still going to stay united? You need something, and this is where we get into above and below. You need something to sort of hold you together from top and bottom blue holds together once they've eaten all the marrow out of the bones it's pretty good now when you can still secure you know benefits and sinecures for your uh for your followers uh by you know ripping apart the things that exist at the moment you have a combined enemy but once that enemy no longer is a fruitful enemy to pursue i don't know that it holds together the same way it does now but again that's all speculation there's yeah. no way to know at this point but, but underneath the uh the wokeness or the progressive um uh, you know the signs that that they're making like like nancy pelosi um wearing kinti cloth and the democrats uh, like wearing making this grand gesture in the wake of the george floyd riots doing this huge virtue signal, they're adopting the intersectional language, they're adopting cultural appropriation, they're adopting wokeness, but underneath that is this neoliberal, neoconservative order, this uniparty, that is, mm -hmm. in fact, more united than the intersectionalists are. The intersectionalists are just kind of trotted out, you know, like that. there's a picture that was floating around about the... In other words, the moderate Democrats, who, again, for the most part, continue to be 
dominated by boomers. In other words, they're continuing the um, moderate left, moderate progressive coalition that you know, during the during the past the Democratic primary, it was Joe Biden who won. And before that, it was Hillary Clinton who took the nomination. And so this is very much an Eric Weinstein argument that the uh, the baby boomers just refuse to die. And it's going to be very interesting coming up to 2024, where you've got Joe Biden, who's very much been showing his age for a long time. The Democrats aren't going to have anyone else because the sense is that they don't have anyone else that can hold the coalition together. But what these three are basically saying, and I think they're right, is, well, what can hold the conservatives together except for being against the other? In other words, you can't have two reactive, two parties that are fundamentally parasitic or you're not going to build anything that that lasts. And you know, even with, you know, when David Fuller took away, you know, took down Rebel Wisdom, he did so because he he saw, he listened to Jonathan Peugeot's argument that said, you're not going to build anything on a platform that's rebel because it's fundamentally parasitic. You need to build something else. And so David agreed with that, began to dismember Rebel Wisdom, but then wasn't sure he didn't have the positive thing to build on. And again, this is why Jordan Peterson's biblical series is so foundational because Peterson is going back to the Bible. This is this has been the playbook since the Protestant Reformation. And even though you'll have have Jordan Peterson uh, critique Protestantism, as will I, and and say very kind and wonderful and positive things about Catholicism and orthodoxy, as will I, the move continues to be fundamentally Protestant. We'll see if Jordan Peterson decides he needs an apocryphal series. I don't think so. Occupy Wall Street riots, and then 10 years later, you have J.P. Morgan Chase doing the pride flag. So you can see that there is this unifying kind of not evident um, structure that's underlying it that is more unified than anything that's dissident to it. So if that is the enemy that, or if that is the reigning ideology, then it is in fact kind of an empire. It's just an oligarchical empire. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that diagnosis is correct in terms of what you just said there about how the neoconservative order i i see the neoconservative order as sort of the uh dude i have to sneeze you can sneeze as 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 being this kind of ossified dried up rotting kind of husk of a formerly great order that's that the the, the height of the neocon sort of movement i would now i'm going to critique this a little bit because in this kind when he starts talking about the neocons he's very much going to talk about a rather narrow specific group of political republicans you know we can really sort of trace themselves back to nixon 
and and this is this is part of what we're going to wrestle with throughout this conversation that the political order is just so massive that to talk about it is is very difficult and so even though he's going to talk about the neocons and i think he's going to make some really important points it's important to not sort of just get um focused on donald rumsfeld let's say okay put say that it was kind of maybe rising in the 70s in response to jimmy carter but it really hit in in the 80s under reagan mm -hmm. and under bush one it kind of began to fall under Bush two, um, it might have been at its strongest owing to the nine eleven attacks, but but it it was already at that time. I mean, people who had a lot of power in, in the Bush administration, among them are Steve Schmidt, Rick Wilson, John Weaver, and the entire Lincoln Project, which shows you how intellectually bankrupt it had already become. Um, I I I, off, I I told the story somewhere else. I can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, that. Uh, Lee Atwater sold his soul to get George W. Bush the first elected by running some of the most brutal attack ads that had ever been run. Uh, Rick Wilson, who was one of the Lincoln Project founders, ran a brutal ad against Max Cleland, a triple war, a triple amputee war vet, uh, where they showed him from like the head down so that you couldn't see it was a triple amputee and called him a coward. Uh, and he did that to get Saxby Chambliss elected. Right. And, and you could just see like the, the quality of people that were willing to sell out for dropping where it is now. I, I think it's a it is a caricature of what it used to be. It, it's the equivalent of. If you think of of the Egyptian pyramids going and seeing them, then I take a picture of the Egyptian pyramids. Then my son tries to like draw with a pencil what the pyramids look like. That's that's where we're at. I don't think the ne that's an illustration worthy of a preacher. Neocon order, it's a dinosaur. So it's it's just it's just dying out. I actually think Trump kind of killed it off when he knocked out both Hillary Clinton and uh, Jeb Bush. If that if that is the case, then what are the left and the right fighting for? Are are they fighting for representation? There's an excellent question. Are they just fighting for power? Is is it really just about power for these? for these um, mercenary individuals? Patient of that or command of that or fighting for what? Like, are they both fighting oh. against that thing? And we're, dis this might we're be clarifying. distracting ourselves by this uh, culture war stuff? This might be clarifying. Uh, or can I ask you, what do you think that the left and the right fight over? And well, I actually, no, I want to, I want to, I want to clarify that point again. There's the left liberals and then there's the the woke left. Um, when the right is fighting with each of those two groups, what are they fighting over? What do you see as the main bone of contention? That might help us parse out this whole thing. Sure. So I don't think the right knows what it's fighting for at all. I think you're right. I think your analysis yeah. okay. is correct that the that the neocon movement was knocked out by Trump. Uh, I think that was the end of the neocon movement. You can see it because Nikki Haley is trying to run for president and all anyone can do is laugh, even mainstream commentators, uh, because, you know, it's just, you know, a bunch of canned lines uh, from, from kind of the, the remnants. <laughs> they laughed at Trump pretty hard. Of this time, we know we're supposed to be like 
for a strong defense and like lower taxes maybe but like there's there's no there's no real ideas there's no real force there so i think you're correct that that most of the, you can see that most of the like establishment neocons fled to the left they're all writing for bulwark or new york times or something now uh there, there however is the ghost of neoconservatism that haunts the right in the fact that there are many positions that are still knee-jerk built into the right, for instance, when the Ukraine uh, conflict came up, many people, you know, uh, immediately we got to send a billion, you know, billions of dollars to Ukraine. Why? Because that's what we do. We're we're the we're the arsenal of freedom, right? Without any kind of real thought into like, well, is this what the right believes in? Does the right believe in going to war in random places that don't have anything to do with its immediate issues? Like, so I think I think there is introspection on the right. There is a, a question of what it's fighting for. And, and the Ukrainian, this is where the Ukrainian war obviously gets interesting because having a proxy war, the, the Ukrainian war, e, e, these these are vast political coalitions that the coalitions themselves, especially when we have the lowest resolution monikers like right and left or Democrat and Republican mask all sorts of other influences, for example, when George W. Bush decided he was going to finish the job um, that his father had left undone, many on the left screamed, you're warmongers, you're neocons. Neocons were sort of Donald Rumsfeld warmongers because they were going to remove the regime, the Saddam Hussein regime, and a democracy would flourish. And of course, that didn't happen. But why the animation on the left why the animation for the Democratic Party to bolster Ukraine? Well, that's because there's this, there's there's within it still this idea of um, liberal democracy. Used to be waspy, now it's uh, blue church secular. And even though a lot of those Eastern Europe countries are not exactly, um, not exactly Sweden, and probably Sweden isn't exactly Sweden. Um, but but this is the idea of you know this is the project that the West has been fighting since the Cold War, and in that sense, um, ironically, the Democratic Party continues to wage war against the Cold War. Except the the Soviets are no longer communist, but they remain totalitarian, and so you've got all of this going on. It's, it remains very complex this point uh which is healthy I, i'm glad to see that kind of the the dust of of neoconservatism is being cleared out in many ways though there's still a lot of it hanging around in the right-wing system that kind of has to get worked out um and so because it doesn't know what it's fighting for what it's fighting the left on is almost always completely reactive right it's it's fighting the left on whatever the left is currently pushing that smells like it opposes kind of old america right i think that's that's kind of the right's general attitude to both the left the woke left and the uh and the left liberals i don't think most on the right understand the difference um understandably they're just kind of used to fighting the left as a monolith and so i don't think they generally pick out or understand the difference um i think at this point there is a shrinking difference as benjamin pointed out the vanguard is meeting 
the establishment on the left because their uh, goals are more and more in alignment. Not to say that there isn't internecine squabbles on the left, but I think that the in general, you know, corporations and, and mainstream politicians understand that just capitulating on this stuff without boiling the frog is the goal. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I think... It, it was said that the neocons kind of got off the ground um, because they got joined by liberals who had been mugged by reality. Like that was that was kind of how that showed up. Um, a bunch of the Democrats who are, or people who might have been Democrats from the 50s and 60s. Um, and this was, I think, like Irving Kristol, um, William Buckley, et cetera, et cetera, were liberals broadly who had been mugged by reality and became neoconservatives. Uh, I absolutely think that there's kind of an element of that that's repeating itself mm -hmm. where you're starting to see some of these center left libs waking up and looking around and going, Oh geez. <laughs> right. You, you could see that beginning to pop up. Mm. I think, well, that's been popping up. Um, and it's, you know, because, and Keller, articulated it well, the procedural secularists have been gotten increasingly tyrannical and more of the, um, the other secularists said, wait a minute, um, isn't, this isn't supposed, this isn't how this is supposed to work. In other words, they were, they weren't conscious, they weren't consciously formed by the waspy um, regime of past decades and in fact, this is sort of where Jordan Peterson says they're not really atheists in terms of how they function. But this then, of course, classically became sort of IDW land. And I, I, I've been beating this drum for a while. I think it is a conflict of worldview. So I think Oran is correct that the right really doesn't have a positive program at the moment. Or a unifying positive program at the moment. Um is it allowed to? Yes, it could. I mean, could but... it do anything that isn't completely bigoted or so... antithetical to... Well, yeah. the other side doesn't want them to have one, obviously. Oh, sure it, it, sure it could. But um, I, I made a point. I was saying that there is something new that's being born. You can see the seeds of it start to show up on YouTube um, of, a new, of a new thing that's starting to kind of circle... And it's happening. Uh, you're seeing it like with Rogan, Jocko Willink, Andrew Schulz, um, Andrew Huberman. That sphere, like within that long form sphere, it's it's that the future is post woke in some in some important way. That it's not that woke will be defeated on some giant battle where a non-woke person will intellectually slay that beast once and for all and it will die and dissipate and go away. It's that the culture will move past woke, woke will become cringe, it will ossify, and then all the people who have bought into it because they were moral entrepreneurs trying to make a name for themselves or whatever it is they were doing, that will... Moral entrepreneurs. Uh, there, there's a keeper. There's a keeper of a, of a phrase for a preacher to steal. Moral entrepreneurs fallout come cringe it will ossify and then all the people who have 
bought into it because they were moral entrepreneurs trying to make a name for themselves or whatever it is they were doing, that will fall out. It's already started to lose its edge. The problem is that while it was hot, it took that opportunity to really entrench itself in all of our institutions and all of our bureaucracies. So, I mean, it got in quick and it's it's like water damage in a house, man. Like that water can rush in in a few seconds and it takes days, months or even years to clean up. So it's a thing like that. I think again, Wokel is just killing it on his metaphors in this here. That part of the problem is that the right doesn't know what it wants. The right doesn't even know, I, I don't think, who it is. I don't think... He's right. He's he's exactly right. It doesn't know what it wants. It doesn't know who it is. It's the right for all of its... Um, and again, a unifying idea. Um, they're, they're fragmented. So as, as Keller said, you have the... Catholics, Catholic integralists. You have the, I mean, the Orthodox haven't been here. I mean, how much there? There's definitely Catholic influence in the political space. How much Orthodox influence is there in the political space? Not, I, I'm trying to think of. You know, there was one from Western Michigan, but he. Uh, he couldn't stomach he couldn't stomach either party and so he's no longer in the in the game we we always say we want to conserve i don't think we know what things we want to be conserving or why i don't think that the right has a philosophy right now i did a thread a long time ago i'll see if i can find it you can post it in the in the uh, description so uh, i get it Reef. I gotta, I gotta rework my system here so I can pull in other things. Afterward, okay. Here's uh, the I said that, um, the kind of David French kind of libertarian, well, that that sort of quasi neoconservative or that second gen neoconservatism, which is a mix of national defense, uh, detente on social issues, and uh, libertarian on fiscal stuff. I said that's dead, and the future of of right-wing politics is going to be basically just following Jordan Peterson. And he said, well, I don't disagree with anything that Jordan Peterson said. And I was like, mm, it doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not. It's that it's not whether you like Jordan Peterson's social views. It's that Jordan Peterson's social views and his ideas and his views of civilization are going to begin to get translated into our, is going to set the new foundation for a political program. Wow. Now, there's a lot to say about that. But exactly what he just said, no matter what you think about the particulars, Jordan Peterson on Twitter is and on YouTube is all over the map. And he gets a lot of criticism, and I hear it often from people. He's talking about he should stay in his lane. And as I said before, if you really wanted Jordan Peterson to stay in his lane, uh, University of Toronto should have kept him in his job. Um, when they when they booted Jordan Peterson out and pushed him up the hierarchy, um, he's all over the place. And what he's looking to do in London on Reformation Day is, in fact, start this process by which there will be new ideas and new conversations and a new consensus. And whatever you think about Jordan Peterson, 
in many ways, at this point, he's got the chutzpah and the reach and the audacity to at least get involved in the project. And at the same time, he is grounding it in conversations about the Bible. <laughs> Again, and, and that his London thing is in, on starting on Reformation Day, it's like, wow. And so when I heard Wokel say this, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wokel's, Wokel's right. Wokel's right. Whether anyone likes it or not. Uh, and I think that's because he's the only person talking about the foundational things. He gave a talk on the Logos at Ephesus, and that was the first time a right-wing figure that I am aware of spoke up and said, we need to deal with the fundamental bedrock philosophical first principles. I don't... Now, there's a lot to talk about there that I'm not going to get in here, but there'll be more videos. I, I believe there will be. But again, the point is that, okay, you sort of have the Catholics do it, but again, by virtue of the segmenting of secularism, that Jordan is doing this as a secular figure. That's critical in this. I think that the right does that. I think that the left does. Now, the left did it badly, and I think we need to talk about that. But I would I would agree with Oron insofar as... And, and, and what he just said there really mirrors my critique of the progressives in the Christian Reformed Church that want to say, well, we're not actually going to deal with our confessions. We're just going to keep changing things and say, well, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And my critique for them is, okay, well, I understand your project and I, I see the rationale and I'm not by no means, I have really no interest in, in stopping you from pursuing it. But there's a lot you actually have to talk about and deal with if you want to do it. And the, the books that I've seen so far that have been written, I don't think are all that serious. I think you have to dig a lot deeper if you want a footing for the kind of structure you wish to build upon. We don't have anyone on the political right, or we have very few people on the political right at this moment who are willing to drill down to the philosophical bedrock and figure out where to put the cornerstones of our foundations, how to put those back into place. Now, now that's very much a foundationalist metaphor that he's working. And I'm, I'm not frankly as convinced that if you wrote, you, what you have to do is sort of a, a, a you have to, a new, a new Thomas Aquinas to, to write another Summa and this is going to establish it. I don't actually think these things get established in this way. And this is what Aron's going to push back on. And I think he's right that the establishment of these things are much more sort of like a floating city. And instead of necessarily having to put down the pylon, you know, the pylons, you're basically going to have to figure out all of the cultural elements that let you float. Postmodernism and critical theory have been used to attack and rot the foundations of our civilization, uh, to ruthlessly criticize, to socially destabilize, and to, at every single point, um, detach our society from the foundations that it were used to erect it. And this is leading to the destabilization of society, to the crumbling of our social, moral, and spiritual infrastructure. 
and nobody or very few people on the right have actually drilled down to figure out how that happened and where we put our cornerstones for our new foundation. And because of that, it's very difficult for the right to figure out what it wants because it can't get its bearings because it's got nothing to lean on or push on. It's just kind of floating. It's it's kind of floating in the free fall of the decline, right? You could picture something like, ah, it's like, well, what do you, you got to land on something. Um, and we don't have that right now. Aaron, you're much uh, more well-versed in a certain uh collective of uh, right-wing or explicitly not left-wing individuals. Uh, do you see the drilling down to that foundation? Do you see the edges of it, the, the bones poking through, uh, the cr criticism of current pop culture, the culture wars, their ideas coalescing, people, people getting attracted to harder, more solid forms? So I think we might have a difference of understanding the role of philosophy in some of this. And it's not that philosophy doesn't matter or it's not that the investigations things doesn't matter. Obviously, I spend a lot. Uh, philosophy is the wrong word in terms of how the word is generally understand. Um, now, a brotherly love of wisdom, if you look at Verveke's recent um, after Socrates, his definition of philosophy, and let's say after Socrates four, um, would be much more. And but I would much rather go with Peterson's image of an animating spirit because an animating spirit affords much more diversity than let's say a metaphor of pylons and a bridge, which is fairly static. An animating spirit sort of takes elements that are all over and and brings a um, brings a harmony of efforts that are you know I can think of Tolkien and the song of Iluvatar. A lot of time doing this, so it's obviously something that matters to me. But I don't think this is actually how the left took over, and I don't think it's how the right rebuilds. Um, I don't think I think so. The left certainly uses ideology uh, rather effectively to disintegrate um, the the kind of the institutions and and the, and the things that joined kind of uh, the American civilization together. It certainly does that, um, but it's not. It wasn't the only tool, and I don't think it started primarily as a philosophy. I think it primarily started as a group of interests that coalesced around a political formula that did the job it needed to do. And, and again, certainly there were interests, but something like an animating spirit or a, a coalition of spirits sort of, sort of bring these things together and the constraints of the system force them to compromise and, and cooperate when it comes to actually ruling and and legislating and while the right certainly needs to do an if, uh, introspection um and understand what it's going to build on going forward i don't think it's going to build on some complex and properly constructed philosophical groundwork i don't think that's going to be the animating feature of what goes forward i think that what kind of makes people identify with each other and want to build and create community and bind their futures together is a shared tradition, a shared understanding, a shared 
uh, narrative about heritage and uh, goals moving forward. And there'll be philosophical elements for that, to be sure. But I don't think that it is in itself simply a proper creation of philosophy that compels people to form communities, right? And And, and actually, Benjamin had kind of a good um, thing on this and an introduction to a very interesting thing that he wrote. Particular piece that uh, is in a sense, not a culmination, but kind of an outpouring of a lot of the work that I did in literature to try to prove, and this is partially why I went to Evergreen, uh, to try to prove that mythology and fiction and narrative in general can operate as a sandbox for ideology, right? So uh, with regard to... Uh, the critique of wokeism, right? People call it a cult. They call it a religion. And then they point to all these different religious aspects to it. Um, but that critique is so shallow. Um, that's like saying, well, you're, that's just classifying it as theology and then trying to undermine it with reason or to prove that this theology, this ideology is functionally a religion. Okay, well, what does... Now, now notice how, what a demotion reason has gotten in our understanding. And this, again, is part and parcel of the rise of cognitive science, that reason is not what it was imagined it could be uh, for Luther or for Locke or in modernity. There's a recognition that people aren't all that reasonable and that the um, that which upon which we construct a worldview does not look like the Lockean imagination of gears and reason. Does that mean? And that somehow being a religion submits it to critique of reason. That's not exactly how religion works, though. Religion critiques life through narrative, not through reason. You can have characters within a narrative reasoning through a problem. And what you get with the first batch of philosophy that's still the foundation of the Western canon with regard, I mean, to the Platonic dialogues or the Socratic dialogues, what you have is this character and these other characters talking about life one-to-one in dialogue. Their philosophy was in dialogue, and it was encapsulated in a narrative. And the narrative is very loose, but it is kind of the narrative of Socrates and Athens at that time. And so there's reasoning that people do um, to construct different ideologies or opinions of the world or truth-seeking mechanisms, so on and so forth. But the narrative itself, that which is uh, – but, but every single thinking, reasoning, rational creature is nested – not in rationality, but in narrative, right? We live our lives as narrative creatures, and within our narrative, then we give rise to these other forms of processing reality, like reason, rationality, logic, etc. And to go and to say that wokeness or critical theory acts, behaves like a religion, is it's a fine statement, and it holds some water, but that doesn't have the same impact as re-engineering wokeness as a religion, taking it serious as a religion, and then uh, doing a thought experiment to answer the prompt, what would be this religion's holy book? What would be its holy text? And so what I did for this particular piece was, and what I've done with other pieces of mine, 
preceding uh, getting on YouTube and becoming a political commentator and now an interviewer, um, was to use fiction to build worlds, build religions, build ideologies, um, and using specifically my heritage being the Christian Western heritage, which is the Bible, as a model for running an ideology through its paces, right? So you have kind of the basic biblical form of starting in the beginning or starting, well, starting a little bit before the beginning, starting at the beginning of the beginning, and then going through the process of mythology becoming various forms of literature, and then ending at the end in Revelation. And then there's a whole arc of human development that's nested between the beginning and the end of time, according to the Bible. So if you just take that as a form, and you start with very rudimentary forms of storytelling, or ideology making, or myth building, and then gradually extend those through more mature, more fleshed out, more prosaic forms of sense making, and then you collapse it back down into mythology you get to walk in ideology, certain fundamental assumptions about the world through a developmental process by overlaying it over the individual and civilization and so forth and culture at large. So that's kind of what prompted me to write this uh, treatise or this book, this experiment called The Book of Intersections. And that is just a working title, which means that this is a taking wokeness seriously as a religion and giving it a Bible. So I think that while it's well worth our time to understand the philosophical issues and approaches and, you know, all, all the different ideologies and, and political forces involved in this process, I think that putting them at the center or the bedrock or the foundation or as the key to these processes might be to misunderstand the role of intellectualism in some of this process. So alternative um, to uh, philosophy, you either have some sort of moral dictate or an aesthetic, like right. some, a way to live, a mythology, and a style. Correct. Yeah. I, I think you're far more likely to see people coalesce around a vision of the good that proceeds from those two sources than one that happens to be the right reflect. You know, I think a proper philosophy is the right reflection of those. So in other words, you're not going to build this on truth. You're going to need true, good, and beautiful. You're going to need all three of the transcendentals. Those things, not the inverse. And do you see those things well, forming? Are I... those forming? Just, just to finish that question that no i don't i don't think they're forming yet i think i think there are ideas i think there are people grasping at those ideas i think there there's proto versions of this working themselves around um so so in some sense they are forming that they're out there and i think people are trying to to kind of gather strength behind them uh but do i think they're in a way where you could have a tangible movement attached to any of these things currently i don't think so i think you saw some people try to do this with say christian nationalism um, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. I think there are problems with that framing, even though I uh, appreciate a lot of... Aaron and I just did a video not very long ago on, I should probably repost it on my channel, a conversation on Christian nationalism because he had watched some of my videos and seen me on Twitter and share some of my thoughts on that terminology. The people involved and their goals um but i but but i think that was probably your first attempt at this it's the thing nearest to that people can think of as a way to orient people towards the good 
as a political movement. Um, but, but that can be a whole nother discussion all by itself. Yeah. And just briefly, uh, before Wokel responds, what was, where do you depart from the Christian nationalist movement or where do you find like the main, just in brief, like the major faux pas? Sure. The, the main mistake with it is simply the, is simply atta- is accepting the left's frame on it. The, the left manufactured the term Christian nationalism and they did it for a very particular reason. They wanted to link Christian nationalism to other forms of nationalism that they don't like. Christian they fascism, like- yeah. Yeah, they like the they like the rhetorical device. They think that it benefits them, and a lot of Christians heard it and said, "Well, I am a Christian, and I am a nationalist, and I would like my Christian faith to inform the values of my nation." So I'm a Christian nationalist. Perfectly reasonable. That that's it's it's not a it's not a failure of of logic there, but it is a failure to understand the trap that the left set for you rhetorically, and I think that that is the main problem there. The left is always going to be oh. making a basket of deplorables to put people. Yep, in. that's entirely fair. That's entirely. That's also a very fair rejoinder that you'll hear from them is you got to pick a term, and the left is going to turn you into evil no matter what. So this is a perfectly reasonable one to push on. And to be fair, that they're... it's also important that over the very long term, groups are usually named by their rivals or adversaries. Uh, remember reading in the Book of Acts, Christians get named by the non-Christians of Antioch. Uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther would have been horrified at their ecclesiastical legacies being named after them, Lutherans and Calvinists. So it's hard to know what names will stick. They're entirely right about that. Remember Obamacare. Um, Obamacare was used as sort of a negative thing. And, um, you know, uh, people, people like health care. Yeah, um, we can have a rather than having an entire discussion about Christian nationalism, which we could go on for a very long time. Let's I want to pull back to something else that you said. Sure. Uh, So I want to read something that I wrote. Um, I said, what is needed is both an antidote to the nihilism, cynicism and relativism of postmodernism and something to serve as the foundation for our society. We have to clear away the postmodernism and then set down once again the cornerstone of our civilization. Both of these moves are philosophical, but we can't just assert, for example, Catholicism and say, there, that's the foundation. You can't just ad hoc say, what will the foundation of your society be? Sure. You know, throw darts at something and be romanticism. Like, we can't. We need to drill through the postmodern sand to the bedrock of reason, truth, beauty, goodness, and reality and set down the cornerstones of our civilization. And we need to do it in a way that's both intellectually rigorous and aesthetically beautiful. An intellectually rigorous philosophy weaved into an aesthetically beautiful narrative will be enough, will be substantive enough to build our society on, meaningful enough to lift us out of nihilism and persuasive enough to capture the imagination of our culture. And that is what we need. So what I think, and this is where I, I, I kind of think, I kind of see our society right now, because of the desperation, because of the nihilism and cynicism of the age, it's like a super, a super saturated solution of sorts. And the moment you put in like a grain of sand, something will crystallize it around. And so it's crystallizing around everything, right? Black Lives Matter crystallizes around that. Trans lives go to crystallize around that. Christian nationalism crystallize around that. Everyone's trying to crystallize around everything. And my suggestion is 
that once we drill down to something and we can get a handle of 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 the truth and we can do that and we can weave the truth and goodness and beauty that we find when we drill down to the to the heart of our reality can be brought together with a a, an, a beautiful aesthetic to form a sort of um, a tapestry, a chiaroscuro of of philosophical, intellectual, academic, artistic, narrative uh, substance that is nourishing to the soul of a society. He didn't say religious, but I think that was, I, again, I don't think the foundationalist, the foundationalist metaphors tend to be much more truth exclusive because a lot because that it, it, these foundational metaphors are fundamentally modernist metaphors okay because that was you know these these were the metaphors of the modernists and modernity has gone away enough that i think animating spirit um, is is going to be a better metaphor. I think he's right that there's coalition. Once there seems to be sort of something substantial, people sort of coalesce around it. But the problem that we've seen in, you know, okay, you can coalesce around Black Lives Matter, you can coalesce around Trans Lives Matter, you can co but, but very quickly the trans and the gays are going to get into dispute, as Jordan Peterson noted, you know, once the, um, as the gays increasingly figure out that if you sort of have a, an anthropology that revolves around the secret sacred self and you're functionally castrating gay children because of trans ideology, the trans and the gays are going to be at each other. Never mind the feminists, the TERFs, and off you go. And that's why you can't have anything. Now, part of what happened in the Protestant Reformation was they decided to use the Bible. And if you look at my conversation with Jordan Wood, you look at Mark Knoll's um, thesis about why Christianity took the form it did after pioneers got to the west of the Appalachians. It was because the Bible sort of became that kernel. And evangelicalism has been, has used, say, Bible-believing churches. I've heard that all my life. You should go to a Bible-believing church. Now, there's tremendous, there's, as Christian Smith said, um, there's, um, interpretive pluralism with respect to the Bible, but that then becomes the foundation. Now, that waspy foundation crumbled between the Second World War and the end of the Cold War. But, so, so and, and again, when you look at Jordan Peterson's project, it's sort of a biblicist, but, but a, a Jordan Petersonian, a Darwinian biblicistic, natural law to try to take science and say this is a new this is a new this is a new canon around which we can coalesce to 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 have higher order agreements to resolve our differences something of that nature that's what what i'm thinking that we need to be doing and so it isn't it's 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 not that i think that we can intellectually argue our way out of the problem by putting forth the uh, the greatest number of both 
valid and sound syllogisms. I, I don't think that's going to work. Like if we walk around saying premise one, the unborn are human beings. Premise two, it is wrong to kill human beings. Therefore, premise three, it is wrong to kill the unborn. That's not going to get us very far. But a vision of family and then grafting the understanding of what an unborn child is into a family where it can create meaning is the kind of thing that's going to get help a pro-life movement get traction in the broader culture. And that has to happen on the artistic level. So, so I think I agree with you. You can't just intellectualize your way out of it. You, you need to put together, you need to integrate artistic beauty and aesthetic presentation and meaningful storytelling with a philosophy of truth, goodness, and beauty that allows those narratives to be like um, like kites that soar but are still tethered to the world and so that they don't crash into the trees of of relativism and nihilism, if that makes any sense. that's I'm, I'm being very metaphoric here, but I'm in do, doing so intentionally. Does well, that make sense? To, to try to ground it, would do you guys see the right making a Hollywood, the right creating epic stories, epic movies? Uh, that can only happen. Space? So again, now, now you understand the project of Daily Wire Plus, that they see that, okay, there needs to be, there needs to be a, a new conservative art the question that these three are asking, or at least two of the three are saying, is, well, do they really have something to to build it around? Is Are the, the canon of Daily Wire complaints sufficient to build art upon, or the stable of Daily Wire personalities sufficient to begin to um, accumulate enough now let's use a space metaphor, accumulate enough mass to continue attracting uh, elements floating in the vacuum of space. That can only happen. Someone's going to have to. Or rather I, right I mean, ideas rather than yeah. the right, but right ideas. That's the, the super, the super saturated society that we're living in is ready for that. But until someone can hit bottom and until until we start moving around in in there and get our bearings on our foundation and then we can orient ourselves and create a vision there's nothing for that to to wrap itself around so the thing that has to come first is a vision someone's got to set up a vision what you said earlier was that jordan peterson is probably the closest to somebody who's chipping toward that vision or a vision that will yeah. become that. Yeah, he's he's the one who's really drilling down towards that. Um, Jordan is doing that. I think John Verveke is doing that. To be fair, Roger Scruton was doing that as well. This isn't new. It's not like nobody on the right has been doing this. I think John Verveke was doing it, I think, or is doing it. I think uh, Roger Scruton was doing it to some degree. Um, now, 
you could you could certainly be justified in talking about a on a political spectrum Jordan Peterson and Roger Scruton being on the right of course Jordan Peterson newly on the right and John Verveke um, he's, he's he's not in, intentionally avoiding being a political figure but we can and you know many people have been wanting me to be more political now remember um, religion is always in politics as now religion is dollars and politics is cents so uh, there's a lot going on here but very i would say i would say we're looking in the in the roots of meaning making space uh jonathan Haidt, of course wrote the happiness hypothesis a while ago which very much is part of this space and so there there are many who are working on it but there's just not a whole lot of people i am i am attempting to pivot in that direction to try and start connecting some threads to that if i can now, now you should also note that none of these are religious figures. So, in that sense, the the religious arrangement that Tim Keller noted remains. Um, Benjamin Boyce's observation with respect to his his woke Bible, which just listen to some of that video. It's 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 very clever, um, and and I, but I think he's right about narrative as experiment. It's sort of how you battle test it. Um, can you because can you can you put together a coherent narrative? So but but it's interesting again where the, the project remains deeply modernist, deeply secular and anxious about um, applied religion. And, and in that sense, the the collapse of Christendom seen in the Protestant Reformation continues. Man, although I'm not sure I'm necessarily the most qualified guy to do that, but I, I might make an effort. But I do, I do think, um, yeah, he's the guy right now who is making the best effort to, to really grasp at what's something that we can orient ourselves with, and then what's a vision that we can look up toward. And I don't, Jonathan Peugeot as well. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, Oz Guinness was a little bit like that. But yeah, we don't have a lot of people on the right who are. We do have some people that are doing aesthetics. Oz Guinness is an interesting person to name. Of course, he's on the, the Peterson Exodus seminar. And Guinness has been working in that space for a very long time. But uh, interesting name to drop. That are trying to create a new right-wing aesthetic, but they just don't have anything to wrap it around, so it ends up being hollow. So we produce, we kind of go through these movements of right-wing aesthetic that always peter out because they're not, they're not indicative of anything greater or larger or thicker or more substantive or more nourishing. So that's. I'd say that they're not. So if you listen to Jonathan Peugeot's origin story, I mean, he intentionally turns away from from new iconography and wishes to continue to participate in the ancient language. The, the struggle, the struggle is, I thought, local distance articulated it very well initially. You can't really go back. Now, I'm not saying that Orthodox cathedrals shouldn't have 
traditional iconography in them. I'm not going to wade into, I'm not going to offer my advice on, on iconography. But if you stick with the traditional, you know, for better or worse, there's your choice. And in many ways, we, we just don't quite know what's beyond secularism now that secularism is increasingly no longer tenable. And, and this is where, interestingly enough, both Keller and Peterson want a neoliberalism, but Keller, of course, has already his own foundations, but that has been segmented by the old liberal secular arrangement, whereas Peterson, by working in the scientific space, is either trying to accommodate it or potentially at some point transcend it. That's kind of what I where I see is as as our problem. So actually, I think I think Oran and I might be closer on that than it first appeared. Oran, do, you do I sound any, crazy to you? Do you Oran? see any culture craft going on that's worth its salt? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of people who are are trying to do this, um, as Wilkel pointed out, to kind of different results because there isn't much to to in, in some places wrap this around. It's also very difficult because I think, in a lot of ways, conservatives don't 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 know what culture they would be creating in the first place. You know, a lot of people have pointed out. There's the clip making the round recently of the show Yellowstone. I don't know if you guys know anything about it, um, but it's the show that a lot of kind and and Yellowstone is first that comes to mind too in this space. Kind of older conservatives are very excited about because it's you know it's kind of American. Yeah. It's Kevin Costner and so I've been watching a lot of I've I've watched now almost everything Yellowstone. I've I saw the the pilot for King of Tulsa. My wife didn't really go for it. I'm now out of the first season of The Mayor of Kingston, Kingstown, and all of it are westerns. Now, remember, Star Wars is a Western. And I think in many ways that narrative of the Western, I treated that a little bit ago in you know Chris Green's observation, uh, Jesus and John Wayne just gets just just completely misses the narrative. Um, but what what we're seeing in in these now I'm gonna differ on on what they say about Yellowstone because I think Yellowstone is trying to do a synthesis, whether it's the um, whether it's the Native American wife of one of the Duttons, or it's the mom who is teaching um, critical theory in the women's prison. I think there is sort of a an attempt to do some synthesis because it's. Those of you who were at the meetup when Benjamin Boyce visited our meetup, um, the the woman teaching critical theory in the prison gives the knives that will be used against her family in that struggle. So I, I think Yellowstone is actually doing more. And I think that's part of part of the process that's emerging. Now, again, there's going to have to be emanation and emergence. It's going to come together. It's going to be heaven and earth coming together 
to to and it's it's going to be a long process as art is and and vocal distance is exactly right there isn't just sort of one fast swoop but we're seeing the um we're, we're seeing the decline of woke we're, we're seeing its edge blunted they're going to debate that in a little a minute here i should let them go blah blah blah, blah. but they've been john ma- wayne kind of right exactly but but they've been the clip's been making the rounds uh of you know one of the you know female multiracial professors you know demonizing the stupid white sexist student who thinks he has power but she has all the power and a lot of people are like what's with taylor sheraton now it's always the um it's always the female professors who are uh spouting this stuff this is supposed to be kind of your this is the conservative vision like this like at this point it's hard i think for conservatives to even know how to script a tv show without echoing you know the so many of the the tropes and 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 priorities of the left uh that's probably something that'll work itself out in in a lot of ways though i think you're probably going to see that come from more avant-garde sources than you are people and you know more power to people who are trying to do this in mainstream production or guys like like the daily wire the blaze that are trying to do it you know separately but i think a lot of this stuff you'll also see coming from you know corners of the internet or youtube or play you know places that are probably not currently plugged into the system and don't have to work with big budgets and and you know but you know it's going to have to feel it's going to have to, we dealt with this in the church in the emergent movement not that it was resolved but the emergent movement again brought us both Mark Driscoll and Nadia Boltz Weber and I can never remember remember his name when I mentioned the other two Rob Bell, sort of three. So it's, the church has been wrestling with the ancient modern thing. And and the fact that we see this, I'm going to avoid the word revival, we see this out, out this Asbury outpouring. And it's contemporary worship. It's very contemporary worship. So they're right. This is a long process, and there's going to be way more failure than success. But I think actually the popularity of Yellowstone shows that the the collective is working on their stuff. And Yellowstone has demonstrated to be a flexible enough um, a flexible enough franchise or universe that some of these things can be worked on that kind of stuff that's very constraining they'll they'll look for entirely different formats entirely different ways of of kind of doing this that where they won't be bound by people who you know are are going to force that kind of stuff into to everything that they're going to produce so i think uh i think you will see some of this though again it's it's all on the edges at this point um and and just and just to answer what Woka was saying real quick, I do think that his his second uh, swing at that that description was far more fleshed out in a way that made it make more sense as opposed to like well the, we have to have a philosophy that the, the his second description was a was a better one that makes more sense. Yeah, and I I think I think Arn hits on something here is that um, let me see if I can I can try and say this in one go. Even in the mainstream, when a show reads as conservative, uses conservative aesthetics, and has conservative characters, all of the action 
and the narrative and the moving forward of the story and all of the the events and all of the judgments of the events and the tone toward those events are all still taking place through the eye of the left's moral universe. Mm-hmm. So I agree, but disagree on that. I'll let him finish and then I'll tell you why. I got a kill with Yellowstone and it's cowboys and it's flannel and it's, it's guys riding and it's old school and there's a shoot 'em up and there's action scenes and they're beautifully shot. But the moral ideology, the moral center of that universe is always going to tilt to the left. And so even when it's like a, a, a even, even what they'll do is sometimes it's always a story of someone from the right. The good person is always the person from the right who moves slightly to the left. And see, I disagree because in the fifth season of Yellowstone, sorry, a few spoilers, there's an environmentalist who becomes a lover of John Dutton and she moves to the right. And and what I thought, especially the fifth season of Yellowstone does, was begin to show that this conservatism can find common cause with, let's say, environmentalists and even the Native Americans because there's a preservationism that's at work there. And what you see is that people people coalesce around the reality that certain modes of development are untenable, yet there's also the demands, let's say, in the state of Montana that that, well, there needs to be an economy. And John Dutton realizes he's not going to be able to hold on to this, this ranch forever. And the ranch in Yellowstone very much sort of becomes a character in the show. And, and it's a character that is dealing with questions of the end of modernity and economic forces. And I think the show has actually done quite a good job at, at sort of having that character, which is the rants, wrestle with it. Now, I think in some ways King or Mayor of Kingstown in some ways does better, even though it's I think it's in many ways a Western, as Chris Green noted, and just look at my video about John Wayne and the scapegoat. Um, Mike, the the middle brother, is the mayor's is the acting mayor of Kingstown. And he's always in the middle between so are the cops a gang or the cops a prison? And Mike is a classic guy who does the bad things that the good people need him to do. And so he's murdering people and he's um, bending the law and he's doing all of this in the name of the community. And so it's a classic Western in the likes of the man who shot Liberty Valance or, you know, some of these John Wayne movies where John Wayne is the good bad guy um, who, 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 who the community needs so that um, the, the, the Stewart, the Jimmy Stewart character can be the face and the front man, but John Wayne does the dirty work. Classic American Western, and, and that's, that's deep in the American um, moral imagination. That's the only story that they can tell. So I can, I can think of the show Footloose where they banned dancing. If you guys know the movie Footloose, it was a movie from the 80s where there's the, there's the typical, the preacher who bands dancing oh i hate that movie all dancing is bad Hmm. now it's an over-the-top i don't hate the movie it's got catchy tune but i hate i hate hollywood preachers but so often hollywood preachers show the cold war paradigm of who the preacher was usually in a negative light caricature and nobody's gonna like him 
Yep. So he moves to the left and allows some dancing, which is probably the right move. I mean, David danced before the Lord. Hey, that's a good thing. But you will never, ever see them write a story where there's a guy who's... Did you notice how Wokel went back to the Bible for his foundation? That's, that's, that's why Jordan Peterson's going there. Way, way, way too far to the left. That he's got to come back to the right a little bit. Well, the, the thing is, almost, almost, you never see that except in maybe like a movie like Pleasantville. There's, there's a little bit of echoing in this. Well, that's the exact opposite. Of their the entire movie's the exact opposite. Oh of that yes, story yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Okay. No, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. That's why I said maybe a little bit because it's like all the kids have color get become move into Technicolor by violating the right. But then there is a at least a, a kind of like. A head nod to you. You could go too far to the left if you wanted to. There's nothing like that now. Now there's no such thing as too far to the left. In fact, going back to Jordan Peterson in his debate with Eric, is it Eric Michael Dyson's last name or Michael Eric Dyson? I always forget. He has two first names. Um, Doctor Dyson was was giving his talk and, and and Jordan looks at him and says, "Can the left go too far and what would it look like?" He said, "Look, when the right goes too far, white supremacy, it's Adolf Hitler. Fine, we can." talk about that what does it look like when the left goes too far and he couldn't get an answer and so the reason i bring up the movie pleasantville is because the movie pleasantville at least it 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 acknowledges that there could be something from the past conservatism that might be worth keeping the current iteration of leftism doesn't have that nothing exists so everything always and only moves to the left in their moral universe always so Okay, I'm running out of time. I have to get home. But, yeah. This is a good conversation. And I should probably follow up. We've got some... We want to have a conversation about this. It might get pushed off until April. That's a really long time in internet land. So, um, I don't know, maybe something will come a little bit earlier. Because I thought Wokel was, was really speaking with some clarity. And... This this thread he that I pull up here um, is what he refers to, and I'll put the I'll put the link to that below too. So okay, thanks for watching. Leave a message. Uh, I'll leave a message. Is this a phone answering machine? Uh, uh, leave a comment.